everyone, welcome back to Vine to Glass, where in this episode we will be talking about 2020 and its effect on the wine industry. Gosh, baby, what a year it's been. You know, when we were talking about what to do towards the end of the year, it seemed like a really good time to reflect on all of the things that have happened this year around the world and how it's affected you know, us on a personal level, but also wineries and those in the business on a, on a professional level as well. Absolutely. This has been such a complicated and difficult year for every industry in one way or another and for everyone in one way or another. And I think that one of the ways that we're going to come out on the other side of this stronger and heal from this is by listening to and understanding stories from other industries or other people. So being that the wine industry was hit particularly hard in a number of ways this year, we wanted to highlight some of those details for everyone so that you can have an understanding of what wineries and uh, distributors and restaurateurs to an extent had to overcome this year. Exactly. Well, maybe if we just start in almost a chronological order, where were you in the beginning of 2020? Yeah. So I remember, you know, even actually before the new year, I was in Australia briefly in December of 2019. And so that, if everyone remembers, was when the devastating fires began to spread all over Australia and can they continued into January. So, you know, by January, I was back in the States and I recalled hearing about how extensive the fires were continuing to be and how extensive the damage was both to wildlife and to property throughout the country. And the way in which this affected the wine industry is that Australia is part of the Southern Hemisphere, so other wine countries, wine producing countries in that hemisphere are Argentina, Chile, New Zealand. And that means that these countries harvest on an opposite schedule from us. So the, our spring is their fall, and that is therefore their harvest season. So these fires were hitting right before their harvest season of grapes. And what that means is that right as everything was about to be picked and getting ready to be picked, fires ripped through all of these vineyards, destroyed a tremendous number of vineyards throughout Australia. And the fires that are the vineyards that weren't directly touched by fire were unfortunately affected by smoke taint, taint in certain areas. And we'll talk more about that throughout the episode as well. Oh my God. I mean, that must be just devastating to watch your your vines that you've worked all year, that you've toiled and labored to cultivate, go up in flames right before you're about to pick them. Absolutely. And that's the thing about the wine industry is that it's so wonderful because it is a tangible product and because you get to every year see a physical result of everything you've worked for. But Unfortunately, in addition to the fires, the first round of COVID lockdowns were also hitting throughout much of the world 
around the same time as these fires and right around the time when the Southern Hemisphere, including Australia, was trying to harvest. So imagine being told, you know, you can't leave a certain radius from your home, you all non-essential businesses need to be shut down and trying to find a way to continue making a living as a winery. If you can't harvest your grapes, you can't make your wine and you essentially lose your entire potential cash flow for the coming year. It's incredibly, incredibly devastating. And I, I know that many of the wineries were able to find a way around this, but many of them were not. And that was really just the tip of the iceberg. And little did we know at the time that that was a serious foreshadowing of things to come in the rest of the year. Gosh, I think one of the things that's really crazy to think about is um, obviously during this entire year with everything that's happened with COVID-19, there have been a lot of relief programs designed around the world by different governments to provide support to businesses. But for many who are, I think, self-employed or who work in an agricultural industry, cash doesn't solve all of your problems. Like if all of your inventory is wiped out because the grapes that you have grown are, if they go up in flames, you can't really replace them. Absolutely. And the other part of that is that like many other sectors of agriculture, wine is a multi-tiered business. So in order for consumers to get a bottle of wine, they rely on a retailer or a restaurant to sell them that wine. And the retailer or the restaurant relies on the distributor to sell them the wine. The distributor relies on the winery or the importer to sell them the wine. So every time a product is lost or a, an inventory is decreased or can't reach the next stage, that affects an entire new silo of the industry. So that's an entirely new set of jobs, of incomes, of families. And the, the wine industry is far is more far reaching than we realize in that way, especially when you then consider the end outlet, like a retailer or a restaurant who, you know, the restaurant industry in the U S was reported to employ something like 13 million people this year alone. And many of those people were in and out of work throughout the year due to closures. And those restaurants rely on alcohol a huge part of their income. So mm -hmm. it's been a really complicated year in general. And then we had mm -hmm. the lockdowns start to hit the United States. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's maybe fast forward a little bit because I guess, you know, by the time that you had gotten back from Australia, that must have been right when COVID-19 was starting to sort of simmer up in, in the news. I mean, I, I remember being in London at the time and I think 
around February is when the news really started to pick up. And I, I actually remember the very last trip that I took was at the end of February to Madrid, which was a COVID hotspot at the time. But Europe hadn't really shut down yet. It was just on the cusp of, of shutting down. And then by early March, everything started shutting down. Right. Exactly. I recall coming back from visiting the winery that I manage in Greece and was working there for a couple of weeks at the end of January and early Feb. And I remember coming back through customs in San Francisco and uh, being asked by the customs officer if I had been in China anytime over the last two weeks. And I said, no. And you know, they said, welcome home. And I remember thinking to myself, this is our protection method right now is the honor system. <laughs> this is our, you know, preventative method right now. And feeling a little bit alarmed at how normal everything still looked at one mm. of the biggest airports on the West Coast. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, fortunately, again, like you guys over in the UK, the the West Coast, beginning really in San Francisco, instated those lockdowns in mid-March. And that meant that restaurants closed, right? There were several weeks there where they were, I don't think anyone was even operating takeout for a little while, while we were still figuring mm -hmm. out how this could be navigated in a safe way. And then ultimately, restaurants were allowed to open for takeout again. And you know, at that point, like you said about cash reserves, most of these places had already burned through a lot of mm -hmm. what they had. And restaurants typically don't just don't have a lot of money on hand. So they rely on a consistent, predictable cash flow to be able to operate. And, mm -hmm. you know, they work on paying bills on a 30 day basis, which requires income. And so this was the beginning of a really complicated period. And when you mentioned relief packages, the first relief package for the U.S. didn't come until, I think, early summer, mid-summer. I mean, and it wasn't even really specifically addressing the restaurant industry at all or many parts of the agricultural industry. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I remember having lunch with a friend of ours that we went to college with who has a restaurant in London called Ikoi, which is inspired by Nigerian cuisine. They've done so well for themselves, earned their first Michelin star within a year or two of opening. Wow. Um, but I remember having lunch, right, as COVID was hitting and Jeremy saying that he was really worried about the state of the restaurant because their bookings uh, which come primarily from tourists that travel to London, had fallen by 70 or 80 percent. And wow. obviously, that's a huge, uh, that's a huge drop. And they also, you know, everything is sort of connected, right? Because one of the things that they really pride themselves on is having really, really interesting small producers supply not only the food products, but also their their beverage menu. Um, mm -hmm. So whether that's wine or spirits or, or what have you. And all of that kind of came to a grinding halt. And I remember in London, there being 
different things that uh, wholesale food distributors were offering. So you could buy produce, fish, meat, wine, even from either wholesale distributors or restaurants, um, just because everyone was trying to figure out new ways to generate revenue. Yep. Right. And let's explain that for folks a little bit more. So when you're talking about the modification to the sales channels, so something like wholesalers pivoting to make things available to, you know, everyday pedestrian consumers like you and I, when restaurants closed, that meant that the end of the line for that channel of sales and distribution was plugged essentially. So the, you know, depending on where you are, that's anywhere from 40, sometimes 50% in big cities, big, you know, metropolitan cities, that's, you know, 40 to 50% of the inventory of a distributor. So whether it's wine, beer, food, and that outlet was no longer available. So now you have a bunch of distributors with a tremendous amount of product building up. So food goes bad. Okay, now let's talk more specifically about wine and booze. There's suddenly this enormous surplus of product that doesn't have a destination. And okay, so then we look at the huge increase in traffic that occurred at retailers. So both you know, specific wine and bottle shops, as well as grocery stores and things like that. And unfortunately, the uptick in business at retailers did not account for the entire loss at restaurants, um, mm-hmm. both from a monetary perspective, because prices are higher at restaurants, people are putting more dollar per pound, if you will, at what they're into what they're buying from a restaurant than they are at a grocery store. And then people were just doing less, right? They're, you weren't going out with friends. You weren't consuming as much as you might've been. Otherwise the parties stopped, the huge high volume events stopped. So then that meant that the sales cadence for these distributors came to a, a grinding halt in a way And then that meant that the providers, so the suppliers, the wineries, the importers, didn't have the outlet to move their inventory through. So everyone Mm -hmm. was sitting on these huge amounts of excess inventory that they couldn't get to the consumer. And part of it Mm -hmm. was just a pure numbers game. And that wouldn't have changed, you know, even if there were enough grocery stores to account for all of that inventory and give it a home, basically, it still wouldn't have equaled or still wouldn't have made up for that loss. Because again, those the events is a huge thing, the travel, the loss of tourism, those are numbers that were purely just lost this year. Mm, Yeah, I guess also, grocery stores carry a different type of inventory than what you might find at a restaurant or a different type of venue and maybe there wasn't enough time to also shift and make the procurement decisions that would have needed to be taken. I definitely felt like this year I was very fortunate to be able to pick up some great bottles 
precisely because of this surplus. Um, there was just so much leftover restaurant inventory at some of the local wine shops in in London that you could buy it at a, a discounted price because otherwise it was just kind of sitting there um, for months and months and months, right? Because the first lockdown lasted for, for quite a while for us um, in the UK. And I was very happy to buy it because I also feel like, you know, Wendell Berry said that eating is an agricultural act. I think it's also a political act in the sense that the choices that you make do end up supporting the producer and in effect, putting money where your mouth is. Um, so I was I was really happy to be able to do that. I'm not sure if that's still the case, if there's still such a surplus of inventory. And I would love to talk about what happened in the summer and the fires on the West Coast and, and how that might affect um, supply in the coming years. Yep, exactly. So before really explaining that aspect, let's close what we were just saying with a summary of, okay, we're at this space right now in the year where there's a ton of excess inventory and that causes some prices to drop throughout many outlets because distributors, producers, wineries were so desperate to move inventory. So there, we entered a little bit of a price game. We and we did see some price drops throughout throughout the industry, which was great for the consumers for a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. And then once things started to, I wouldn't say stabilize because I don't think they ever stabilized, but once businesses and wineries got a little bit more of a handle on how they needed to pivot their business and their sales channels it seemed like a lot of places did a good job of, of creating new avenues to sell their product and, and or taking advantage of existing ones that they previously hadn't put that much time into. So as you said, okay, now we're moving into summer. People are kind of figuring this out a little bit. They're like, okay, this is how we do business during COVID. A lot of wineries and distributors had invested in new tech to make their product available online more quickly. They'd changed fulfillment policies and procedures to make things faster. So this, even just to sort of restabilize required a tremendous amount of effort and investment by an industry that frankly is pretty old school still in a lot of ways. They're, you know, the wine industry is not known for being an early adopter in anything and at least not in a widespread fashion. So this alone was a big deal for them. And then in mid late summer, we get hit by the fires throughout the West coast of the U S and this is, you know, the hotspots were California, Oregon, Washington. And again, horrible for everyone affected and for the region at large and even more tragic because they were so centered around wine country as they somehow always seem to be. You know, poor Napa and Sonoma and Mendocino have been affected by wildfires something like three out of the last five years and on a devastating level, um, 
And again, when we were talking about the fires in the Southern Hemisphere earlier in the year, which were right before their harvest, that was the same situation here on the West Coast. But Yambo, I know you were probably hearing a little bit about what was going on in your home of Oregon. Well, yeah. I mean, this is so crazy. So my parents live in a very small town called Newport, Oregon, which is right on the coast where they have an oyster farm. And it's a coastal community. So we have a big bay called Yaquina Bay. The climate is very temperate. Um, It's Oregon, so it rains all the time. And this was really the first time in the 30 years that my family has lived there that we've ever been impacted by fire. And it was, um, it, it was pretty severe. So Lincoln City, which is the city north of Newport, was evacuated. There is a small town called Otis that's a little bit further north that has this iconic cafe and um, it's a very, very small place. Otis was basically burned down and and my parents actually had to evacuate. I mean, I saw a photo of our backyard and the sky was it's just orange um, and that's really never happened before. And I'd love to hear your take, Phoebe, on what implications that creates for for winemakers here. I did not know that smoke taint permeated the grape. So when we're talking about smoke taint specifically in this way, and it travels, like we said, hundreds of miles, lands on vineyards that were not necessarily on fire, lands on the grape skins, starts to permeate the grapes the uh, the effect can essentially ruin the entire vineyard and this is because there's a particular compound called 4-methylguaiacol that is defined as the the baseline for whether or not something becomes toxic in this case grapes so it basically if you have high enough levels, it can make wine taste like an ashtray. You know, sometimes you get smoky qualities in wine or whiskey and you think, oh, that's delicious, right? But um, but too much mm-hmm. of it makes the wine taste terrible. And many wineries have insurance policies that will cover up to a certain amount of smoke taint in their wine. And I think many policies will allow for up to one part per billion of four methylglycol in grapes affected by smoke taint. A lot of <laughs> these wineries were testing well over that, and even vineyards that were well far away from the source of the fire, if they tested at, you know, you send in your grapes to the lab to ha- test for this compound, and if your test results come back at 1.1 part per billion, then the grapes are unusable. You know, there's just, it's, Determine that the mm. risk is high to use that crop. So then you have all of these abandoned crops. And now suddenly we've gone from the issue of a surplus of inventory around the world with nowhere to sell it to what we're going to see as a huge drop in production levels throughout California, Oregon, and Washington, who also had their own fires up in the Northwest that affected wine country. And, you know, it's estimated that something 
up to 70% of the Cabernet Sauvignon harvest this year in California was destroyed either directly by the fires or by smoke taint because fortunately a lot of the white grapes had already been harvested. Uh, The white grapes and some early harvest red grapes like Pinot Noir had been harvested before the worst of the fires hit in the center of wine country. But you know, later harvest red grapes like Cab, like Syrah, were still on the vines. And so what this means is that we are going to have very, very little wine coming out of these West Coast wine countries this year. And, you know, even for the places that do make wine, there's going to be suspicion from consumers around the quality of the wine, around drinkability of it. And it's going to be a very strange effect in the market because we have gone from this price drop throughout 2020 as a way to incentivize consumers to buy more to now a an enormous um, decrease in overall availability of product, which is going to drive prices back up. And it's, it's going to be a, a strange, ultimately stabilizing process over the next few years, or it's going to be a strange approach to pricing over the next several years. And I think we're going to see several dips. I think we're going to see several jumps before even reaching a point where things have restabilized because, again, a lot of those vineyards were infinitely destroyed. So even if the a lot of the vines survived and okay you think well the crop it's just the crop of 2020 that was lost no there were thousands of acres of vineyards that were permanently destroyed and will need to be replanted if the owners can afford it if the wineries can afford it if someone is willing to do it and and then it takes three years at least for vines to really become productive enough to be used in winemaking Oh my God. I had no idea that was the case. Actually, that completely escaped me that in addition to the 2020 harvest, that there might also be what sounds like very significant impact to the overall vineyard and to future years. Definitely. Definitely. I mean, this... (laughs) We can't wait to see what the books and the textbooks are going to look like about 2020 because it is so eerily apocalyptic. I mean, we haven't even touched on yet the intensity of the hailstorms that ripped through Bordeaux, France, during the year. And that was its own issue. So their harvests and their product was incredibly negatively affected by that. Um, You know, Burgundy had their own issues as well. It's just... It's been one of the most trying and difficult years for the wine industry and the supply chain has been so upended that you really just have to applaud all of these businesses that have done their very best to pivot. And, you know, one of the positives is looking at of the consumers who have made such an effort, as you mentioned earlier, to, you know, support these places that really need it. And the the difficult part now is that so there are so many places that need it. There are so many wine regions that need support. I mean, 
everyone has had their challenges this year. And I guess it's, you know, people have been asking me throughout the year, who should we be buying from? Who should we be buying from? Who needs the most help? And it is such a hard question to answer because earlier in the year, Italy was the most hard hit, right? So all of their production facilities closed. All of the cork manufacturers were closed in Portugal. All of the barrel makers were closed and the distributors and the folks who are actually doing the exporting, all of those layers have been affected. And then, of course, everyone here in the US through fires or COVID closures, it's a year that demands so much attention from consumers and so much thoughtfulness around how we buy. And, you know, that being said, there are some some positives to come out of this, but we'll, we'll get to that at the end. So now we're talking about the end of summer, fall. So people, wineries have harvested what they could. And, um, I recall also that most of, not most of, but a lot of Europe had reopened towards the end of summer and early fall. Do you remember? Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Restaurants were open again. People were even traveling. I mean, I didn't travel, but I had plenty of friends who were traveling again. So things opened up. Right, exactly. And I remember watching all that happen in Europe and thinking, you know, this feels a little ambitious. It feels a little early. I know people were traveling to Greece in droves because it was one of the, you know, really nice accessible destinations that was open and um and then sure enough there came a second or i don't know if you would call it second or third wave of covid cases at this stage but it arrived and so you know about mid fall end of fall a new wave of lockdowns hit many parts of europe and for us in northern Greece, the winery up there that I work with called Akratos, which is outside of Thessaloniki, it was the same situation. So most of the region was placed under lockdown. And now this is happening at the time right when wineries, retailers, exporters are trying to get ready for the holiday season. The holiday season is the most important part of the year for the wine industry. It's when most of the sales occur. And by this point in the year, I think people were really, they were starting to feel a little more optimistic around the potential for sales because so many businesses had pivoted to online models and to being able to reach consumers via delivery and um and then they were you know given another shutdown mm, yeah gosh well i mean maybe to touch on some of the positive aspects that that did emerge in in 2020 despite it being such a difficult year for all um i do feel like just from reading and you know seeing what's out there there do seem to be as you say this rise in delivery businesses and um new ways of of buying wine and those have seemed to pick up quite a bit of traction yep no and you're right and i think this is the 
we'd be remiss not to look at the silver linings or the positives to come out of this year as hard as it feels to, to find them. Um, like we were mentioning earlier about the adaptation that was forced throughout the industry this year, that was really desperately needed. Uh, a lot of these businesses were behind the eight ball when it comes to presence online, to being able to fulfill orders via delivery, you know, really working on their DTC businesses, which is short for direct to consumer. So if restaurants were closed and retailers were full, it was up to the winery to sell directly more, um, which they're allowed to do in many states in the U.S., as an example. And that's actually really positive because if you, let's take a $20 bottle of wine, for example, a winery can sell their $20 bottle of wine and keep that entire profit for themselves. But if, when they sell that in a retail shop and the price is $20, they've had to sell that for you know, about 10, depending on the contract, depending on the volume, they had to sell that to the distributor for about $10. Then the distributor adds their own cut. Maybe let's say it, it then reaches the retailer. They sell it to the retailer for $14. The retailer adds their own cut you know, it gets up to 17 or so. And that's actually, you know, that's a, a positive side of the story. Many, there's actually an additional layer in there for many wineries, which would be the importer or the supplier. So really you could say it's $10 from the importer or the supplier. It goes to the distributor for $13. Distributor then sells it to the retailer for 17. The retailer then sells it for, you know, 20, 21, 22. So, Instead of selling their wine for $10, wineries can sell their wine for $20. And that's a really positive element for their bottom line. And that's and that's a channel of business that has been seeing tremendous growth over the last 10 years, especially in the United States. And many wineries are now at the point where they're funneling about 50% of their production into the DTC channel, which is an ideal scenario for them it really enables them to be a more independent business. It enables them to actually, you know, control a bit more of the messaging, control the pricing and run a healthy business with a realistic bottom line. Mm -hmm. You know, I would love to do an episode sometime on direct to consumer uh, as a channel and, and how it all works and, you know, who started it. And uh, yeah, I would love to talk about that sometime. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Definitely worth its own episode. Uh. <laughs> and maybe because, uh, you know, I'm certainly looking forward to 2021 and a new year with a fresh start. What are you looking forward to most in the, in the new year? Well, I would say my optimism is very tempered right now. I think 2020 has taught me to be very cautious about thinking, oh, it's a new year, everything is going to change. And I am 
certainly more hopeful now with the news of the vaccine than I was previously. And I'm endlessly grateful to uh, everyone in the medical community and science research community who have propelled us to this place of hope. Finally, I think the things that I'm looking for to most are really just like any sense of normalcy, being able to hug people, being able to sit on a couch <laughs> with my friends, um, being able to be at the winery in Greece when I need to be and being able to sit at the same table with all of those people again and, you know, shaking hands with strangers, you know, things like this, going to restaurants, uh, like seeing how and who is going to reopen and, you know, this, what I hope will be an eventual resurgence of the restaurant and bar industry. And I know that's going to take some time, but that is going to be so fun when it comes back. And another really positive silver lining of this whole situation, which we would be remiss not to mention, is the positive adaptation of a lot of legislation on the state and county level surrounding alcohol distribution, wine sales, and things like that. This is a notoriously highly regulated industry, and many of the laws have not been changed since post-prohibition. So that gives you a sense, hopefully, of how complicated and um, and watched the, and taxed this industry is. There are a lot of seemingly arbitrary laws that desperately needed updating. And because it's been so difficult for businesses to pivot, because it's been so difficult for wineries and distributors to sell in places that maybe needed inventory, we did see some good, some good updating of a lot of those state, those laws on the state level in, especially we'll take somewhere like Pennsylvania, for example, who finally loosened some of their cross state border laws. And there have been different processes um, going through the state legislature around making it easier for wineries to sell in Pennsylvania and for places in Pennsylvania to buy across state borders as well. So that's just another example of um, a little, a a way that COVID has given kind of a a kickstart to this industry. And I'm, I'm hopeful that that will spread and we will end up with a really, you know, a, a, an industry that looks new in certain ways at the end of all of this. And um, hopefully that will yield a lot of positive outcomes for consumers as well. We're already starting to see it have that effect. And I think there's more to come there as well. Mm, yeah, absolutely. What about you? Well, you know, we've talked so much about these things that have happened this year, the, you know, the summer of fire, the the virus, obviously, COVID-19, and, and having just arrived in Oregon after, after a year away, which is the longest that I've been away from home ever. I feel very similarly to you. Like, I'm really looking forward to this return to some sense of normalcy. I can't wait to be able to go to restaurants again, have dinner parties with um, friends and family at home. You know, wine is 
is um, it's a pleasure to be shared. And I, I miss being able to do that with, with friends and family. Um, and I'm also definitely looking, right. And I, I'm also looking forward to being able to travel again. I mean, maybe we all traveled a bit too much before, but that sense of exploration and this feeling of liberty that comes with um, being able to move around the world, I, I definitely miss that. And yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to being able to do that again, maybe visiting Burgundy again or going to the Alsace or, I mean, we have a little trip planned um, to yes. Sonoma that I'm looking forward to. Yes. Um yeah, but it's, I guess what the what this whole year has brought to light is just how important the the simple things are. You know, being able to gather with the people that you love and care about, and to share those experiences with each other. It's been an eventful year, to say the least, and I think we're all looking forward to a fresh start in in twenty twenty one. So happy early New Year, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon. Ciao for now.